Hello and welcome to Cinema in Seconds. This is the show where we talk about spooky moments from frightening films. <laughs> As you can guess, this is the first of our horror four episodes. I am your host, Frankenstein, and with me is Danula. Okay, you brought the puns. I was like, I'm just not oh, prepared. No. <laughs> and our guest, the Wolf Mike. Oh, nice. Oh dear. How long have you had these in your back pocket for for tonight? Since the drive home today. Okay. okay. I'd like to think it was like a week ago. You're like, I gotta drop these. Amazing. You'd be very sad if that was the case. <laughs> well, that very well could have been. I, so, I appreciate your spooky intro to us. <laughs> so this is the first of our horror series, I guess, on the podcast because it is October and it's Scary Movie Month. Um, have you guys been watching lots, lots of horror movies, horror adjacent movies, all that jazz? I've watched a classic Universal <clears throat> horror movie every day for the month so far. Wow. Because the Blu-ray set has 31 films counting Spanish Dracula, so one a day. <laughs> Uh, we watched uh, The Invisible Man's Return today, which is not really a horror movie, but it was still pretty good. We, me and my friends made, I got, I just got to mention this. Back when Hollow Man came out with uh, Kevin Bacon, me and my friends made a trailer for the sequel, Hollow Man 2. <laughs> <laughs> and all that it was, was people walking down the streets and being tripped by an invisible man and then having him snicker in the background <laughs> oh no it was comedic genius that would genuinely be an amazing sequel just knowing you know pervy paul verhoven just being like this weirdo european pervert and then the sequel's just like kitty jokes that yeah. would be amazing <laughs> that's like the duality of man <laughs> yeah I, sp- I spent some time re-watching the the pics from this podcast but i i uh you know, for, for new movies, I I watched The Beyond for the first time. It's a, a Fulci movie. Oh, how was that? And I have no idea what I watched. <laughs> I'm very confused. That is the, that's, I don't think I've seen a Lucio Fulci movie, but I think that's his rep where like weird stuff happens and it's kind of cool, but it, it doesn't really make sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you enjoy it? There is, it's, it's surreal as hell. And then okay. just punctuated by moments of, gore that i'm very shocked that you'd see in a oh, i guess he, he's a 70s director but this is in the 1980 or 1981 film mm-hmm. just very you know it's it's always funny to see an italian director direct something and dub it in english and this is set in new orleans and it feels nothing <laughs> like new orleans do they even try to have like the the sort of lingo of uh and cadence of speech that is associated with new orleans in the in the dubbing Oh God, no. no. That's unimportant. <laughs> okay. I guess that's okay. Not necessary. I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, I don't imagine people would, it's not very good, but the 70s uh, sort of men on a mission movie, The Eagle Has Landed. Um, but it's like, the, it's a group of Nazis and engaged in a plot to assassinate Winston Churchill, which is also a problem because they're the protagonists. So it's like, how am I supposed to root for these? Whatever. <laughs> but like the cast members include like Michael Caine and Robert Duvall and, uh, I think maybe Christopher Plummer, but like Robert Duvall, you know, great invisible comedic actor really puts the work into doing an accent. And Michael Caine's just Michael Caine. 
<laughs> it's kind of great to have them in the same scene together doing it. Oh, accents optional. <laughs> okay, so like I said, this is the first of our horror movie series. Uh, we're hoping to do three this month leading up to Halloween. And the first one, we are going with 80s and 90s horror. So anything from the 80s and 90s is up for grabs, basically. <clears throat> and uh, Mike, this was your pick. You, this is kind of your idea. And well, with the shows that you've been on have all been 80s and 90s shows. So obviously, this is an era that, that you love. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. This is... Uh, um, uh, the content that I've been skirting around on my two prior experience, uh, prior appearances on this podcast, um, items that I don't know, I think it'd be funny or fun to talk about. Um, and you know, I, I think it lends itself to a, a good discussion. Um, Ian, I, I get the feeling that you might be somewhat the same age as me. And, um, you know, growing up, I grew up in the era of video stores around the corner that we're predating Blockbuster, um, you know, shelving that was stacked one on top of each other and yep. out from uh, the walls on an eight by 20 small room. But there was always that one wall that was just all hard. And I think they kind of knew what they were doing, trying to titillate, you know, like eight, nine year old kids. Um, but a lot of the places didn't really care if, um, you know, if we wanted to rent them on our, on our own. Uh, so it's just yeah, something that's I was stuck. a wuss so <laughs> I was a pretty <laughs> wimpy kid I didn't <laughs> I ran from that section <laughs> oh man well Dan I, I'm, I'm not sure if you had that same experience with video rental stores I mean you're a little bit younger than us I, I did actually like it I I remember actually when my store uh, local video store closed down um, but it's funny because I was thinking about this recently for thing I'm doing. Um, it was actually a long time before I started to like take horror movies seriously and really like invest in them. I wasn't, uh, it wasn't until I was 13 that I actually saw a horror movie that I was like, wow, I loved this. Um, and I don't think it was because my parents had like issues with violence because my dad showed me all sorts of, basically my dad's logic was like, well, if I want to watch it, we can, we can watch it together. It's fine. So I watched all sorts of violent action movies. That was not an issue, but he didn't really watch horror movies. So I didn't, uh, get exposed to them from him and then the horror movies that were kind of coming out when I was a kid and were popular were things like Saw and Hostel and The Descent okay. yeah. which in addition to just being like too violent for me were also movies that were like too boring for me at like eight or nine where I was just like I don't it's like adults in a room talking like if I grew up in like the 80s and 90s and the movies that were it's like Freddy Krueger and you know, Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers, I think it would have been a lot easier to be drawn to that. But outside of like The Ring, which even that was a bit, I was a bit too young for that when that came out. There wasn't a lot of like cool monsters to draw in a kid. I do remember seeing the first Saw when I was like 10, maybe, maybe 11, just like on TV at a friend's house. And I remember liking it, but it wasn't like I was like, wow, I love horror movies now. I got to watch it. Like I didn't see the others until I was like 15, just because I didn't really care. So I don't know. I kind of missed the boat on horror for a long time. Yeah, I, I gotta tell you that um, while many of those horror VHS covers and really their posters, I guess, same art, are were meant to titillate you and kind of draw you in. I was a lot of times drawn to 
the the ones that played off the kiddishness of mm. of the the main characters so stuff like um child's play 2 where the cover is is chucky with a giant pair of scissors trying to decapitate a jack-in-the-box right right uh or um evil dead 2 you know which is a kind of a weird one um where, the, where it's like kind of the skull kind of a skull but kind of a person oh it's yeah kind of, it's yeah I like that poster a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I missed the boat on that one. I was like, when I was a kid, the horror movies that were popular, and I didn't really think about this till relatively recently. I'm like, man, they were not trying to reach me at all. Because even the ones that would have been more PG-13 were very clearly aiming for like teenagers. And like, right. I didn't, I didn't understand that. And now I'm too old to appreciate them. So I totally missed the boat on those types of movies. <laughs> but I yeah, it took me a long time to get into horror because yeah, when as when I was a kid, I mean, we'd watch them in sleepovers and stuff. But I was always like the the kid that tried to avoid <laughs> watching them because <laughs> how about we watch Ghostbusters? Watch, like, that one's scary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'd watch like you know the Leprechaun movies, and I'd be like, oh, I really don't want to do this, but I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to be a wimp and go home either. So that's where we we're at. <clears throat> yeah. Well, should we start this off? Get her going. Let's do it. Okay, well, let's talk about one of the big ones from the 80s. Um, we talked about these slasher movies, and when you think slasher movies, you think Freddy Krueger. So I just want to talk a little bit about Nightmare on Elm Street. And again, this is one that I didn't, I mean, it was, Freddy Krueger is kind of ever-present back in this time, right? Like, he's, he's one of those things you know about horror, even if you haven't seen the movies, you know who Freddy Krueger is. Uh, but once I actually did watch it, I realized, hey, this is actually a pretty fun movie. It's not as, I mean, it's, there's a level of cheesiness to it, but it's, it's kind of winking at the camera, but it's also pretty entertaining. Like it's a pretty entertaining movie. And, and I appreciated it quite a bit. And the moment I want to talk about, because I'm thinking, okay, we're talking about horror movies this month. So let's think about creepy ideas that these movies present. And the one I want to mention is it's a very simple scene and it's not even that well-directed or that well-acted, honestly. It's just uh, the two the two main girls, Nancy and whatever her friend's name is, and Johnny Depp's in the room too. And they're talking about their dreams and they come to the realization that they're actually dreaming the same person. And I just think the idea that coming to the realization that the same person is showing up in multiple people's dreams is just really creepy. And, and I mean, that's the premise of the film is that Freddy Krueger is haunting these kids in their dreams, but just if you kind of distill that idea and when these two characters and kind of Johnny Depp, because when you see them talk about it, he denies it, but you can tell from his face, this, they're talking about the same person that's been showing up in his dreams too. And just put yourself in those shoes. If you came to the realization that you and your friend were dreaming the same dream with the same person showing up, that would be bone chilling. Like, like that's a frightening idea. And actually a few, a few years ago, there was a whole like internet viral thing where, where people were claiming that this was happening, like around 2013, 2014, they were claiming that they were, everybody was seeing the same person. Now, how do they came to this realization? I don't know. And then it started this whole big internet fad. Have you seen this person in your dreams? And they'd have like sketches of them and stuff. Um, 
Well, that can probably be written off to the idea that you're putting the idea in their heads already, but I don't know. The idea is Don't think about elephants. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I still think that that's a, that's a really effective, um, just scary concept thrown into, into this goofy slasher movie that I think we might take for granted, but. Mm-hmm. Michael, hand it off to you first. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's something when you think about it that <laughs> the dream sequences themselves are obviously set pieces, right? And they get increasingly more elaborate as the series goes on. But you know, in the Wes Craven original item, uh, original movie, um, that the realization comes that they're having the same person and those dreams being so wildly different. You'd think the realization would come a little bit earlier. Um, just, you know, someone describes being chased around by a guy in a weird hat with a glove and sweater. Hideous burn marks. <laughs> Hideous burn <Yeah>. marks. <laughs> or in, in Tina's case, running around like he has to take a dump. Um, but it's true. <laughs> it's, it's just something that, uh, I don't know, I, I like the, the realization scene. And it, I think it's pretty common to a lot of the movies. Um, certainly you see it in... Um, in dream warriors um but you know it, it's kind of the I, I, I don't know I, I would just say um you know the the crux of of, of getting to the getting you to care about the kids as a unit even though you know that most of them are gonna be killed off by the end mm-hmm. right. yeah which is important too is i mean this is kind of late in the original cycle of slasher movies but compared to like some of the later sequels are certainly basically every Friday the 13th movie where you actually do care a little bit more about these kids uh, in part because there's less of them. So you can develop their personalities as individuals a bit more. Yeah. And Ian, I really like the point you make about the sort of urban legend quality of it. And it reminds me of just like how kids, and I kind of thinking of this as more even younger kids, but I also think to some level that even though this movie's rated R was kind of secretly the real audience. Right. Um, I agree this notion of like how kids scare themselves by just embellishing and misunderstanding stories of, you know, like bloody Mary being in. I was just going to say bloody Mary is perfect. Perfect. But you can imagine like, you know, like a bunch of, you know, uh, elementary school children or even slightly older kids talking about like vague similarities and dreams they had and start and noticing more parallels than really are there because they're caught up in the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, even just being in the right mood, I remember driving with like some buddies, this was a couple of years ago and it was like really dark out and there's like, just like living in the middle of nowhere. So it's just long stretches of road and woods and just talking about the idea of light reflecting off slightly wet roads. So it looks like there's someone out there and then talking about it so much that you start to think, okay, but like, is there someone out there yeah. <laughs> um, where it's like, there's literally nothing that's happening, but you can kind of, and this movie, obviously in this film, as we'll, quickly learn there's there is something going on these kids really are in danger but i love the way that it just kind of shows how we scare each other um even without when we're not even trying to which is to say nothing of the kids that'll lie just to scare you even more yeah that guy (laughs) totally was in my dream he killed my family oh god yeah (laughs) Yeah. but uh yeah that's a great that's a great pick i think you know some of my, my my favorite scenes in this entire series and this one has one of them are one you can't really trust what's reality and what's not. And mm-hmm. what I thought you were saying, uh, Ian, when I we looked at the Google Doc and you had Dream Man on there for some reason in my head, I thought you were talking think of the the school scene where um, Tina in the body bag, um, 
with um, Nancy falling asleep in in the uh, the classroom, and uh, the the other student that's kind of you know just um, reading Shakespeare, kind of wrote and as you would you know when you're not really just interested suddenly turns into a thespian as 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 she, she falls asleep which is like the first clue that you know you know that something's off um you know, obviously it's a little bit later than the moment you're talking about but you know it, it's it's nice that you know in this film and even in the fourth one you you see this type of stuff where you really can't trust reality and i think that they're really at least the creators of this and Wes Craven certainly are very good at getting you the question, you know, what's real and what's not. Right. Yeah. And this film too is so great about the way that like visually it'll ebb and flow in and out of what feels like a dream state where first of all, you don't always know you're in a dream. It kind of takes a couple of minutes, which feels very uh, appropriate for this story and natural to how we perceive our dreams or tend to. But I also love right at the beginning, there's that like shot of the neighborhood and it's kind of, uh panning following nancy i believe and it's very like idyllic and there's sort of like a uh it feels very dreamlike but then it segues the camera just moves into her getting picked up by her friends and they're going to school together and it's like oh no this isn't a dream this is actually legit and the way that like you're never and it's not like the film doesn't make a big deal out of that it's not super like ah you didn't even know it was a dream or it wasn't it's just a subtle detail where you're never you kind of really always need to be paying attention and second guessing uh, what you're seeing, which is perfect. And it, it does that so subtly from the start, which is great. Oh, and, and not to stray further from your point, Ian, I'm, I'm sorry. No, um, but, um, you know, just to, I, to talk about Dan's point there, um, the, throughout the movies, and especially this one, you're never really sure whether are those the school children doing that chance of one, two, um, phrase coming for you you're never really sure whether they're real or not i think that the, at one point they're in that shot that you're talking about but there's also a line of dialogue where tina talks to um uh nancy and and uh nick corey's character about the schoolyard rhyme like it exists in the world it's not just in that dream mm -hmm. and it's interesting because this movie does something really well which is normally something i hate which is when movies try to surprise you and that, oh, this was actually a dream. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where they're like, oh, here's something that happens, boom. And then they wake up and you're like, oh, that was just a dream, people. But this, you're right, this, the more subtle way that they do it and keeping you guessing is much more effective. Because otherwise I, I usually hate, <laughs> I hate when TV shows and movies do that. <laughs> like, and this character just got killed. Oh, but it was just a dream. You're fine. <laughs> Saw 3D does that. Yeah, Fun fact, that, that's it. Saw 3D. I'll take your word for that one. You got to watch all the Saw movies, Ian. There's only like nine of them now. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so, I'll jump right on that. You know, I mean, there's that's about how many Nightmare on Elm Street movies there are, I think. Because there's six original and then New Nightmare and then the remake. So it's one off. And then or, and it's nine if you count Freddy versus Jason. Yeah, yeah Freddy versus Jason. This is what I was going to bring up. <laughs> so, there we go. So equal franchises. Put some respect on Kelly Rowland's name. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's right. gotta. Okay, Mike, why don't you give us a, another pick here? All right. So this is a perfect, perfect segue into Wes Craven's new nightmare. Um, 
Uh, so I did something which I haven't done in ages um, this past month, which is I watched uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 1, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which has the best song, and uh, Wes Craven's new Nightmare on a row. Um, and I skipped all the rest of the movies. And, um, you know, which one is a reasonable that, choice. Yes. <laughs> Not that well, all the other uh, ones are bad. There's some really good stuff in all of the other ones, but you, those are kind of like the big three. Yes, I mean, look, I'm I'm a Rennie Harlan truther. I think you're well oh. aware of that at this point. But oh, no, um, I, mean, I didn't I know that. <laughs> I, I I love the Roach Motel sequence. The Roach Motel sequence is my jam. I wasn't sure um, if the Rennie Harlan thing was a bit. I don't oh, know how it, like. <laughs> this is one hundred percent sincerity. You can tell Greg this. This is one hundred percent sincere, or he'll he'll hear it in a few, a few days. That's true. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Further, go get back to the point here. Um, one of the things that stands out to me, um, you know, throughout a through line through these movies is a relationship between John Saxon and Heather Langenkamp. And, um, you know, in that first movie, um, John Saxon is playing it like procedural and he's, um, you know, kind of standing toe to toe with, with Langenkamp and Robert England. Um, so his shock at the murders when he walks into the next door neighbor's house kind of highlights the terror uh likewise in the third movie um his despondence at the loss of uh his wife and nancy's mother and turn to a drunkenness he plays that a drunk 10 times better than nancy nancy's mother did and she was nominated for academy award apparently i did not realize this um well not, not for, for nightmare i'm assuming not for nightmare it's for, it's for national <laughs> but um, oh. oh my god, I did not realize that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Ronnie Blakely is her name. I had no um, idea that she was also a, a regular of Robert Altman. So within the, within New Nightmare, um, it's a metatextual horror movie, right? There's like just the basic plot for people that haven't seen it is um, it takes place in the quote unquote real world. And uh, Heather Langkamp and John Saxon, they've long given up being you know, in these movies and they're um, confronted by basically Freddy coming into the real world. And I guess the backstory, not that it really matters, is there's an ancient demon or something that's being kept at bay and the writing of the script is what's delayed that demon from coming in. But that's logical. Then, yes, I mean, it's, it really makes sense when you watch it. <laughs> If you watch uh, the movie early on, they do some groundwork in showing the friendships and relationships that um, Heather Blankenkamp has with all of her castmates. You see Robert England outside of the makeup. You see Wes Craven um, kind of explaining the plot at one point. Um, and you see John Saxon and her at the playground um, over her, her son, kind of talking about the death of her husband. <clears throat> Um, so the point and that I really want to get to is near, you know, the third act of the movie, um, there's a point where reality starts to blend with the dream, just like we saw see in the first movie. And um, uh, Heather Langenkamp um, tracks her son back to her house and uh, John Saxon's there. And when she goes out 
to talk to him, he suddenly believes that he's Donald Thompson, his character from the movies. And it has a great bit where he's just parroting the dialogue from the first movie. She's saying, Freddy Krueger did it. Yeah, sure. Nancy. Hey, well, why are you calling me Nancy? And I don't know. It's something that sticks with me that's it's a smart way to play off nostalgia. And I think it does a, a real great job of making you feel kind of the gut punch of seeing that friendship kind of dissolve into nothing, you know, into their characters. Mm. So I guess that's my moment. It's a long setup. I'm sorry. That's a really good pick. No, that's, that's really good. And I like too, because I mean, shortly after this, Wes Craven makes Scream, which is the more, certainly more popular, like meta horror movie. And what's interesting is I find like Scream is more, I like Scream a lot, but it's a lot more just like having fun with the idea of like meta horror. Whereas New Nightmare, there's fun to be had, but it's also, it feels like that meta-ness is used for more dramatic and uh, at times horror related concepts. Like there's this subtext in the movie about how spending your life making art like this starts to affect your personality in potentially negative ways, which is kind of interesting because I think most like people in horror who talk about it are like just really friendly and just like, I don't know, have a very jovial aspect about the work. But I like the idea as a dramatic conceit of like, the more you do this, the more it kind of takes a toll on you. And it's, it can be uh, exhausting to spend your life playing characters like this or writing characters like this. And I think this moment speaks to that where it's like, he's literally regressing into that fictional character um, in a way that's, you know, it's fun and clever for fans, but there's a, there's a real undercurrent of darkness and horror to that idea too. I think it's really good. It's not just like, playing this character over and over again but especially with something like horror where you have such a dedicated fan base they don't let you forget (laughs) that you are this character right like if you think about all these horror conventions and how how these actors will go back and back and and they can play one of these roles in one of these horror movies and they're forever brought back to these events because they were that character um so i can yeah, so that's a really good point, Dan. I can see how that how you'd yeah. sink into that a little bit. Um, does does it's, that come into the movie at all, Mike? The like the fan aspect. Oh yeah, though there's a moment where um, Heather is on a talk show describing what she's going to do next now that Freddy movies are over, and the talk show host won't stop asking about the movies, and at one point. Um, basically surprises her with um, Robert England in costume, busting out of and clawing his way out through the scenery of the daytime talk show. And absolutely um, something that would happen in any talk show. Absolutely. Especially during this era. Yeah. And, you know, in the, you know, in, in the aftermath, um, there's a confrontation between Robert and, and, and Heather. You know, Heather's like, Robert's saying, I'm sorry, I should have told you, you didn't want to keep it a surprise. And Heather's kind of pissed. You know, but you know they, they make plans to meet up, um, you know, in the future. Um, so it's it's even talking to the fandom um, of of horror movies, and you know, to your point earlier about um, you know how horror fans not kind of never let these actors go. I mean, if you look at whether Heather Langenkamp is doing now, she's actually a special effects 
artists, um, or at least the owner of a special effects artist company, does a bunch of gore effects for horror movies now. Um, so she's still in the business. And, Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's always kind of rare, too, to see like an older actress in quote unquote older actress in these movies, in these slasher movies, you know. And I don't know how old she was when she made New Nightmare, but, you know, she's pretty good in that role. Um, mm -hmm. And you can definitely see that experience kind of, you know, shining through. Yeah, right. you could argue she's better in New Nightmare than she is in the original. Yeah. Um, not that she's bad in the original. And certainly by the standards of typical slasher movie acting, she's like, she's Brando <laughs> by those standards. <laughs> I mean, but she's, um, she's my favorite final girl. She's she supersedes Jamie Lee Hurst to me, and yeah, I know that's yeah, a that's, that's a tough thing to say, but she's more clever, I guess, is kind of where it falls down. I to. mean, that's fair. I just watched Prom Night with Jamie Lee Curtis, and that was horrible. So I'm all on board with. You. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting example movie. of an actor who got to who got away from it, in as it were, the sort of horror uh, scene, and then when she came back to it, it was on her own terms and her own accord, and she can kind of step in and out. But you're right that yeah, a lot of these. And it's like a lot of like, it's not just horror. Like I think about like Alec Guinness and like his just disdain for being associated with Star Wars, which you can imagine your Oscar winning Alec Guinness, like greatest actor of your generation. And all anyone wants to talk about is like, what were the Clone Wars like? Please leave me alone. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that in the context of a movie made in the mid nineties. Cause it feels like now in like the age of online fan communities, like it'd be interesting to see a movie like this now in terms new, of new nightmare yeah which we'll see what the the new stream might explore i have no idea i haven't seen the trailer um but i could see that being the topic a movie like that might explore because there's definitely something something to to dig into yeah for sure because it feels like it's only gotten worse yeah so does john saxon stay that character for the rest of the movie for the most part like is he or is it just oh, he... kind of a blip it's the uh, exient stage left at that point. Um, okay. So it, the scenery around him changes, which I didn't notice the first time I saw this last uh, month for a while. But when I was rewatching it last night to prepare for this con, uh, this, I mean, I did notice that her house changes into the house from the first movie, but the cop, uh, sorry, her, his car changes into the cop car, and her attire changes into sleepwear i'm not sure if it's the first you know it's the same white pajamas from the first movie um but at that point where nancy goes back to the house she ends up um having to find her son i believe his name is dylan um and ends up tracking down the demon that's portraying freddie into honestly what's pretty amazing scenery i mean the the production design of the hell layer in this movie is fantastic mm -hmm. it looks like it looks like i don't know a, a you know catacomb roman coliseum hybrid um and you know when she falls down um the proverbial pit um to confront freddie um she's smart enough to hold on to the butcher knife this time which is hmm. you know something that a you know a lot of protagonists they would somehow you know it would wouldn't be in their hand when she got when they get up, but when she gets up, she's she's holding it. 
Yeah, good thinking there. And I like the point you make about how like the set at the end is genuinely frightening. Because the other thing that's nice about this movie, especially if you watch them in order, is that Freddy becomes like most monsters do with repetitive sequels, kind of a joke. Like Freddy's Dead is basically a comedy. Um, <laughs> it's the one that has like Power Glove, for example. Um, yes. But with this one, like even not even before before you even get into like the meta elements, it it feels like a genuine threat again and genuine like a genuine horror movie. And that's really refreshing, especially if you're going in order to kind of be pulled back into a more dangerous environment. And that set at the end is a big part of that, I think. Well, there's even a Nosferatu homage when uh, Freddy emerges to steal the sun before going down to the lair. Where you see the shadow creeping with cloths. Right. Right. Which is a really cool image. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, good pick. Good pick. Um, Remember, disposal. you are Mr. Thompson. <laughs> All right, I'll jump into to my scene from The Silence of the Lambs, <clears throat> which might get people annoyed either A, because it's not a horror movie, it's a thriller, either from like people who think it's too good to be a horror movie or people who are like hardcore horror fans who like reject it as a horror movie, because I've seen both but I say it's a horror film and a darn good one at that. And the moment I'm going with is kind of a cheat because in the context of the film, it's definitely a small moment. It feels though like a scene that gets talked about a lot because it's very significant, but I like it. So we're going to talk about it anyway, which is the last in-person scene with Hannibal and Clarice Starling where uh, Hannibal has managed to uh, get out the full childhood trauma. Clarice tells her story of trying to save the lambs and that failure to do so and how that still haunts her. And, and then as a reward, he gives her the case file on uh, Buffalo Bill that he is embellished with his own notes, although she doesn't know that just yet. And as he's handing her the notes, because throughout the movie they're they've been separated by this sort of um, like the glass wall um, in his prison cell. Now he's in a new cell where there's actual standard bars. So when she goes to grab the, uh, file there's no there's not really a separation there and his finger just gently grazes hers and the shot of that lasts it's it's a, not a long shot it fa- it goes pretty quickly but it lasts just long enough that you can almost hear Jonathan Demme be like are you paying attention this is important because it could have been like just a quick you know one second but they let it linger just enough to make you feel uncomfortable And I love this moment for a lot of different reasons on a simplest level after having spent this whole movie where these like the scenes between Hannibal and Clarice are unsurprisingly the heart and soul of the silence of the lambs. The rest of the movie is great too, but those scenes are what you come for and they get these conversations they have are such a delicate chess game of trying to get information out of each other. And yet also weirdly coming to relate and respect each other. And you feel like this really strong not necessarily bond, but there's this complex relationship between the two, and yet they're always separate. And for this one millisecond, this one moment, that separation is broken, and they're connecting on a physical level. And I love, sorry, there's sirens going off outside my window. I have no idea if Mike's picking that up, but it's a fun flourish for our horror movie episode. Um, I, I love just that moment of just like, in the context of a movie that has spent, you know, at least an hour at this point, keeping these two apart, this one small, simple, in any other context, irrelevant touch is like as impactful as a full-on embrace. And I love that it, the shot lasts just long enough to make you uncomfortable, 
Like it lets you linger with that for a little bit, uh, which is something else the film does masterfully. And uh, Mike, I think you and I have talked about this uh, elsewhere yeah. where there's shots, maybe on the podcast somewhere else, but there's shots in, in these movies, in this movie that like, they last just a little too long. People looking at Clarice weird or like the handshake with Crawford at the end, which feels like it's deliberately paralleling this, that also lasts just a little too long. And it just, it, it doesn't feel like necessarily it's trying to impart a specific, this is the idea. It's just like, ooh, I feel somewhat uncomfortable and I'm not totally sure why. Um, and I just love how in the context of the scene, you know, in a way this is like, this is the moment where they've kind of been the most honest with each other and her in particular is kind of stripped bare emotionally in terms of, you know, what she has been previously hiding or sort of dancing around. And now with that sort of exposed, they're now closer than ever. We get to see that literally and not just figuratively. So yeah, that's my moment. It's very small. It's not necessarily scary, although you could argue it's very scary depending on your perspective. And uh, yeah, it's great. Just fingers touching. That's, that's all you need. Do you think that he licked his finger after? I hope not. <laughs> no, he would saw, never. I saw it. it was just he was just test, tasting. Maybe He's testing. That's why he had to kill those other guards. He's like, mm, I'm hungry now. <laughs> Who knows? No, I don't think he would ever hurt her. No, Although he no. he does. Uh, I think he cuts her hand off in the book, and he doesn't in the movie. He cuts his own hand off. Is that Hannibal? In Hannibal, okay. Yes, or maybe I, I, and I know in the Hannibal <clears throat> book they run off as lovers at the end, which is like, which is why Jodie Foster's like, yeah, I'm out. This is garbage. <laughs> which is like, yeah, fair. Maybe he doesn't cut her arm. He cuts his own arm off in the movie. I don't actually think he does hers in the book, but a, I did watch that movie. And it was day. a good nap. Hannibal. <clears throat> oh, Hannibal uh, is, is fascinating. Hannibal, like I've Car- never seen a movie with such craft and yet on like filmmaking level, and yet it also just feels so wrong all the time. <laughs> Gary Oldman is just going for it. He's just way over the top the entire yeah. time. And Ray Liotta towards the end as well. Yep. yep. Ray Liotta is the main thing that stands out for me with that movie. And I was thinking this is kind of separate, but like Silence of the Lambs is so good at like demonstrating the way that Clarice is degraded by her male colleagues and treated in a sexist way and it's all so subtle like very rarely does anyone say anything to her it's more what they don't say and how they look at her and then Mm -hmm. in like Hannibal they just have Ray Liotta like propositioning her in the most vulgar way possible I can't even quote what he says because it's it's an offensive line and this is a family show but just trust (laughs) me when I say that it is it's so like, and I'm not, obviously we know they're like, there are really guys out there like that. who will just say gross stuff like that. But on a, on an artistic level, I'm like, man, we've fallen so far from where we once were the grace and poetry of the filmmaking in Sansa Lambs versus Ray Liotta just being gross. Well, and at least it's being used for an artistic statement in Sansa Lambs, you know, when, mm-hmm. um, oh God, what's the boss's name? I forget his Crawford. name. Crawford. Um, makes a choice to you know try to get the details of 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 the of the kidnapping and murder in front of the state police without her presence you know and it's all about trying to extract information or at least he says so if it's a mm-hmm. confrontation of this um, you know and the point that you're bringing up here with the the the, the touching did you notice and it's something that um, it takes a few viewings to kind of piece together. That touch is the first human touch that Hannibal Lecter's had in eight years of woman. 
Mm. They make a, lot, a reference to it saying the first uh, per woman that he's been around in eight years is Clarice. And the last one was a nurse who he bit the face off of. Mm. So his pulse never got above 85, even when he ate her tongue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm in a weird spot where I haven't read the, the, the books. Uh, I have seen the movies, but I have... Know, somewhat of a vague recollection of the major plot points of, of Hannibal. So to me, in the moment, watching that movie, I think it's, it's kind of almost like seeing it as a first-time audience member. And I'm not sure whether to read it as romantic, twisted romantic affection, or is it dominance? And mm -hmm. you can read it as either. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky because, and this is something that gets pointed out a lot, like Hannibal treats her of all the men in the movie, other than Barney, Hannibal treats her the, with the most respect and dignity. Even more than Jack Crawford, it's Hannibal, which also adds like this weird layer, which you can also argue too, like Hannibal's, is he being totally genuine or is he manipulating her to get what he wants? Because he ultimately still is a villain, even if he's very likable and charming on screen. And yeah, I mean, it's also, I think in his mind, he probably does look at it as a sort of affection of sorts, but he's also doing this after he's like, forced her to relive her trauma for his own interests you know he could just tell her everything about buffalo bill but he doesn't he makes her jump through these loops and he's like all right i'll give you a riddle to help for you to solve the case um yeah but i can also see that as being he's he's almost playing out or feeling out whether she's for lack of a better word worthy right and so he's got the sense of her and he's testing her out. And so he's not going to give her everything. She's got to work for it. And, and I think through that, he's, I think that's how he's built that affection. And especially with the touch, right? I think that touch, I don't think that's him manipulating her. I think that touch is strictly for him. I, I don't, mm -hmm. I think it's much less him manipulating her as he's, I mean, he's genuinely getting something out of this relationship as well. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I feel it's genuine on his end. I, I, really I don't think the sense. touch is him manipulating her so much as it is the, the, his <clears throat> prize for manipulating her. As you say, he's getting something out of like, okay, right. I've brought her to this point. And now like on a, on a literal physical level, she's sort of within like, like I can reach out and touch her, you know, this is what I want. I'm going yeah. to do it. That so I can see. yeah, I mean, and I love the layers you can read into it though. And even the thinking of like, in his mind, even though he is a villain, he I don't think he thinks of this as a malicious act, even if it kind of is. Um, maybe not the touch itself so much as the steps to get there. It is also just a brilliant climax to an amazing scene. Um, because, and I want to say, I haven't looked on like a shot, like an actual like a deep dive into the shot composition here, but it feels like in relation to the other conversations they've had, the close-ups in this scene are much tighter. So you as an audience are also brought in closer into that space. Like I, I remember just the shots of like Lecter uh, at this point, his face is consuming like uh, when they're going back and forth still about the story with the lamb, um, his face is like the entire screen and hers too. Um, and I don't think the close-ups are quite that extreme in their earlier confrontations, but I don't know for sure. It's also something to do with, you know, the, the angle it's shot at and the angle that he's presenting his, his face at. I mean, I don't think he's looking at you straight on. At a point, he's looking down. So mm -hmm. his temples are kind of filling out 
you know, um, the upper corners of the screen. Um, it's interesting you, you bring up the scene, uh, to be honest, um, given, I, I, I think this was a scene we talked about in the early 90s episode I was on, but at an earlier point. Um, okay. It's just, there's so much to talk about here. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really one of the highlight scenes of, of this era. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I almost, the reason I did is because like I gave a lecture on, uh, it, it doesn't sound like it will relate to the Silence of the Lambs at first, but uh, Russian formalism, like Soviet editing techniques developed in the, the 20s. And I was talking about that as an example of like, I don't remember if it was in terms of just editing as guiding the viewer's attention or specifically this idea of like, um, restraining certain shots elsewhere so that other images have more power because you've shown restraint elsewhere that we spend all these shots of them separate and there's one together and it it, it has more impact than anything else oh it's so good <laughs> this movie rocks well i mean it must we've brought it up three times now on the podcast yeah maybe we need like a more uh moratorium on the silence of the lambs oh. references I so might have a moment Hunter I want to bring up later. I haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. So <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll hold off moratorium off a little bit longer. Fair enough. Because it's a great movie. It's officially our favorite movie in the podcast. Yeah. Cinema in Seconds top movie. I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, I'll uh, pass back to you, Ian. Sure. So we're going to go back to cheesy slashers from cerebral horror thrillers to um ridiculous uh, what when did child's play come out 1990 88 88 yeah. okay so it's still 80s yeah so let's talk about child's play and i want to bring up a moment because i kind of want to use it to frame the idea of whether how good horror movies are at that using their premise and so we're going to talk about child's play which is of course the killer doll movie that that we all know um and the the moment is when the mom played by uh you know jessica beale's mom from uh seventh heaven <laughs> if anybody got that reference um i have not watched seventh heaven so i didn't get it but i still laughed so, it's not a show you reference anymore <laughs> not, not too often no uh, so she's i don't know she i can't remember exactly what happens leading up to that but she's you know mad at this doll she's thinking that you know this why isn't this doll she's trying to get this doll to talk because she thinks that she's heard it say things before and she goes to pick up the box that the doll came in which is an abnormally huge box by the way and she's she's looking at the box and all of a sudden the batteries fall out that were supposed to be included and and of course then she goes to check the doll and sure enough there are no batteries but the doll is talking and then of course once she she sees the empty canister he twists his head exorcist style and uh and starts talking to her again is this race swearing at her hmm? yeah is this race okay uh is it <laughs> not yet yeah no no, no he just says no. chucky wants to play yeah right? yeah hi i'm chucky. okay play? yeah so, so he's still, he's still goes, got the kids Brad voice goes nuts yeah no he's still got the kids voice at this point okay um <laughs> but i just think that's a great example of using the premise to full effect in this right the the idea that you know batteries go with toys and this toy is doing what it's supposed to be doing but it shouldn't be right so the fact that wait a minute there's no batteries in this thing how is it talking to me 
I think it's a great way to say, you know, this isn't, yeah, this is a movie about a killer doll, but we're going to use that idea to full effect. It's not just going to be, we're going to slap on this idea and then just have him kill people. We're going to use the fact that he's a doll in cool and interesting ways. And I think this is a, this is a good example of that. And I really like when horror movies can do that. They're not just, they're actually, and Nightmare on Elm Street is the same way, right? It's taking the idea of a killer in a dream and then using it to play with the idea of dreams in interesting ways. And this is doing the same for, for children's toys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's every version of a gag we can pull out of this premise. Right. Which, but which is, if they it don't sounds, do that. Yeah, no, I agree. The point, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, like it sounds, when, you, when you say it like that, it sounds somewhat artless, but no, when you get, I was thinking about this recently when watching, and this is a movie that's time period appropriate for our topic, uh, Christine, the, John Carpenter, yeah, right. Stephen King, killer car movie, which I like, but I feel like the the fact that it's a car somewhat gets wasted where like some of the ways it kills people is just like with psychic powers. I'm like, why even make it a car then? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's what I'm, that's what I'm car against, Stephen King. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the wonders of cocaine is the phrase you're looking for, Mike. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a, great, it's a great case for it, Ian. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I haven't, I haven't seen the, I honestly haven't seen the Chucky sequel, so I don't know if they, if they do that as well, or is it just kind of goes to, to basic slasher territory or not, but. So like, I feel like you're somebody who's seen them all, so. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> I, well, at least I've seen the first three. Um, okay. uh, the, the third one is really bad. The second one's probably the best of the original trilogy. Um, that gets off with, you know, the, the, the ball rolling. Um, I don't know. The, the, the first one, I mean, yes, you do see the seams at some point. There's some overhead shots, whereas obviously it's a, a stunt double little person filling in for, for Chucky. Um, but the scene you're talking about here, the thing that I love about it is the music cues. The music cues are used to, 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 to highlight the scene, the right moments, right? And and I guess you can say it's cheesy for certain horror movies because you know it's it's a trope, right? But there's strings when the batteries drop, yeah. when she turns over uh, Chucky and looks at uh, where the battery slot is, and she moves one piece of fabric over, one piece of fabric over. There's strings there, strings there, and then it's dead silence when you have the extra spin. Yeah, and it's perfect spot to get you to. to that you believe that someone would drop this and be freaked out. Um, I don't know. This movie traumatized a generation of kids uh, my age. <laughs> I was, I was seven or eight. I, I had older siblings. That my my older brother was twelve or so when I saw this. But you know, obviously the movie had come out a little bit earlier. Um, but I was also of the age where friends I knew, either themselves or their little brothers, still had children's dolls around them their bedrooms if you had a sleepover um i can't tell you how many people knew had muppet babies dolls um some of my brother's friends had um had little buddies um which i'm not sure if that's the name of the doll that's in the movie or the name name of the doll that they based off of yeah yeah, little buddy is the one they based off of um or they, they they cribbed the look from and so I, I definitely saw those in the in, in the wilds, and you know it's it's 
a movie that haunts a young kid more so than the monsters and the melting faces and the gore effects at the right age it really sticks with you and it, to kind of also bring it back to an early problem head laying camp Catherine hicks has the great wonderfully expressive face that you really want to have in a horror protagonist you know she sells that moment and she sells um her disbelief that this is really happening when she's trying to track down chris sarandon later on in the next scene um it's a much better movie than the premise really deserves and a lot of that has to do with the performances and a lot you know and that's including brad dorf you know do you guys want to hear a potentially embarrassing admission yes absolutely i don't think i've seen this movie in full oh really Mm. no i i I, my partner has it and i think i was like in the room when she watched it but i think i was doing something else i was like editing or writing something for school i haven't actually seen this movie in full interesting I've seen so, the scene where Chucky swears at the mom and hits her because <laughs> Brad Dorf is hilarious in it. Which maybe I'm sure when you're a kid it's not funny, but when you're watching it in a YouTube compilation at 17, oh, it hits. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, well, Mike, wow. if you want to be sufficiently creeped out, I would suggest listening to um, the episode of Lore Podcast where they talk about Robert the Doll. Which is what this was movie was based off of. It's a, okay. a real, you know, quote unquote real life ghost story about a possessed doll. Check it out. It's creepy. <laughs> so, all right, a, a few things here. And I, I will definitely check this out. One, did you know who the original voice of the doll was? Before Brad Dorof? Yeah. No idea. Nope. Jessica Walter. The, the grandmother from Arrested Development. Really? Yes. <laughs> Fascinating. They actually recorded dialogue with her and had to trash it. I'm not sure if Don Mancini, the writer who owns the franchise, really was the one that objected or if it's Tom Holland, the director. That's um, interesting. Yeah, but I can't imagine having anyone but Brad Dorf in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's and, the reason Chucky's like an iconic monster now in his own right. Man, what a great career that dude's had. Yeah. Between yeah. this and Lord of the Rings and, and Dune, Exorcist, Exorcist 3. <laughs> the original Dune, he plays the guy who talks about the juice of Safu. Oh, of course. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but that's what he does. It is through the juice of Safu that the, the mind acquires speed, speed acquires thought, the thought acquires. I don't know if I'm getting this in the right order, but that's what the juice of Safu Better. does. It's wild. If you didn't get it in the right order, make sure to text us. At- uh, yes cinema underscore seconds make a list of our mistakes that's i had no idea i kind of would love to hear those tapes of her in that part because i think she's a good actor like i'd be curious to see what she did with it but she was a villain in play missy for me right mm-hmm. yes and she she's was. good in that she's very good in that it's weird to watch knowing it's it's aunt lucille but uh and really she's a villain in arrested development too (laughs) she's the best (laughs) she's great yeah okay anyway that's all i really wanted to say so horror movies use your premise that's my message all right mike take it away 
All right. To continue so the theme. Deeper and darker. Yeah. To continue the theme of horror movies that I watched that are way too young of an age. Let's talk about Hellraiser. Um, How young were you when you saw this? Um, this was probably between second and third grade. Wow. Yeah. So That's my brother young. would have, my brother would have been thirteen or so. So he was in the right the right mind space. It was obviously a rental at that point because it's like a nineteen eighty nineteen eighty one film or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's a it's not a movie that I really understood the ramifications of until much <laughs> older. Um, you know, the movie's is entire premise is sadomasochism. I mean, I think the original uh, title yeah. was Sado sadomasochism from hell or something like that, which doesn't really roll off the tongue as much. Um, all right, so the premise of the original movie, um, for those who haven't seen it, um, has a brief uh, beginning where Frank Cotton, um, who is one of the villains, uh, buys this little toy box uh, called the Lumberstrand's uh, configuration. I butchered that. Who cares? Um, takes it back to his house, opens the box, and is introduced to um, the Cenobites, who are who Pinhead is one of. Um, he is murdered, clawed apart, and when the movie next moves on, his brother Larry is moving in to that same house um, with his uh, second wife, Julia. Um, his daughter, who is a nominal protagonist, is hanging around, but she doesn't really live in the house. So early on in the, the, in the movie, um, they're moving in to the house and um, Larry is helping the movers um, move a mattress up the stairs. And Julia is um, in the attic looking at um, pictures of Frank. And the reason why is through flashback, it's revealed that she had had an affair with Frank um, shortly before her wedding with Larry. Um, and the flashback is pretty steamy for an R-rated movie. It's um, when Frank shows up to the house and pouring rain and he's asking to be let in. And let's just say it out loud. Frank, the person, is one of the worst actors I've seen in a horror movie. Um, he is <laughs> he's not bad. good. Um, but what the, the flashback is doing is kind of showing him corrupting uh, Julia, or at least I view it as corrupting. Um, you see them um, kind of, he has this lust for her and he flicks his knife and kind of cuts off her, um, her clothing and then they have sex. At the same time, this is cut with the mattress moving forward. So you have Julia in the attic, three stories up, flashing back to sex and her face is really selling the moment. She's a great actress. Um, and you have Larry moving the mattress up. So as the, the music is crescendoing, it feels like a gothic romance. It is very in your face, um, but the crescendo of the music also kind of cuts in with what you view as the climax of the sex scene, but Larry cutting his hand on a errant nail 
on the stairs. And yes, is this ham-fisted? Absolutely. Do I care? No. It is a literal interpretation of the pleasure and pain um, you know, ethos of the Cenobites. And I think it's a really smart way of doing it. And you look at the movie itself and I, I, I feel like Julia carries the movie and it's a great introduction to her, to her character. She's really driving the movie for the first hour. So you barely see Kirsty. Uh, she's in it for maybe 10 minutes and Pinhead for even less. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very artful description of a very, a scene with a lot of things going on. Like, I like how you describe how it becomes kind of like a gothic romance, because one of the things that I find interesting about this film, and not always well executed about this film, but certainly interesting, is that it feels like it's like 18 different movies at once. Like, on the one hand, you've got like this weird, um, creepy sex cult with uh, the Cenobites, who are awesome, and probably the main reason this movie's famous, they look and sound amazing and they are. Um, but then you've got like the flashback scene and partly because Frank, as you mentioned, is like the worst actor in the world. It feels like it becomes like, like a soap opera, especially when it's like, you know, kind of frigid housewife having affair with husband's, you know, dangerous bad boy brother. It's like, what am I, am I watching Dallas? What is happening? Um, and then it gets invaded by like these, Lovecraftian demons from another universe. It's such a strange mix. And even this scene, like the cross cutting of the moving of the couch, I want to say there's like some line too where they're talking about like pushing the couch through. So it's like really connecting those moments. And I'm like, I don't know if this is good or not. Like it's definitely doing a thing and I get it, but it's like, man, like the tone is so, it's so fragile. I don't think Clive Barker is a very good director. I think he had many good ideas. Um, he directed this, right? Yeah, you, you, you're not a, a defender of Rawhead Rex. He directed Rawhead Rex? Oh, he well, he wrote it. Um, okay, it, it's it's based on this story. I had no idea. I have yeah. not seen Rawhead Rex. I'm only aware of it from reputation, but uh, and rep- by reputation, I mean Mike Staclasa watched it when he was a kid and talked about it in like a couple red letter video videos, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I'm, I'm not sure I like the scene as I definitely don't like it as much as you do, but it, it is like highly memorable. Like, as soon as you started talking, I'm like, yeah, I know exactly where you're going with this. Um, it's it's a strange, one of the many strange scenes in this sort of strange film that's like a smorgasbord of like really cool, fascinating ideas and execution that wavers from at times like spot on to kind of off the mark, strangely watchable still. Would that be a fair assessment? Ian, yeah, where, do you, I, where do you stand on Hellraiser? I do. I dislike Hellraiser. <laughs> I'm on. sorry. I well, I think I, uh, you don't gross. like body horror. Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> also, I just honestly, I just found it in between the gross parts. It was boring. That's kind of my take on it. Um, but I do really like the how you just connected the scene with the theme of the the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> the pleasure pain aspect of it is actually pretty clever um mm-hmm. so good job mike you pulled it well, out pulled out something that i don't know maybe wasn't intended to be there but i think it's intended I, I, think I think it's intended, intended. Okay. yeah i'm gonna say, um, what do you have this logged out on letterboxd me I'm doing some oh, research <laughs> two and a half okay you have the same score that i have for it okay 
Well, this someday. was dot 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 gross. Yeah, that sounds like you. <laughs> so, someday I'll do this. I'll log my review on Letterboxd. There'll be two words. This rules. Um, you, you big fan of this one? I don't know. I, I, I'm a big fan of the first two. Um, mm-hmm. The second one doesn't hold up so much on my rewatch as I thought it would. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and while Frank is a terrible actor, and let's get that out of the way and say it again, because it really deserves repeating. He's an awful actor. Um, I think his voice is pretty good for mm-hmm. the um, the monster that he becomes. And yeah. the reconstitution right. scene that immediately follows this um, the cutting of the hand is one of the great effects scenes of the 80s in my books. Um, I think the practical effects, I mean, I think we've kind of talked about this outside of this podcast, but practical effects generally hold up better than what we've seen in CGI. Um, there's not, I mean, there's some stop motion there, but a lot of practical effects. And I think the it's, I mean, the grotesquerie there works and the voice works. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think the ending for me would work as well if I didn't enjoy Larry, his brother, as an actor. Who I, you know, I think he kind of sells the movie as well. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I agree with your point. Like, he's very good at playing a repulsive monster. He's not good at playing someone like it was a normal person who I believe someone would want to sleep with. I'm like, no, this guy's gross and bad. When he's a monster, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, you, you don't think... Out. You don't think he's he's attractive from, no. from a neutral standpoint? I do not. Um, but I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned, and you, you brought this on yourself by mentioning you saw this at too young an age. How did Little Kid you react to the the sex stuff, but also the melding of that with like horrific body horror? So the body it's horror... seven that feels like a lot to process. Yeah, the body horror, <laughs> yeah. The, the reconstitution scene was definitely something I had to kind of like walk out of the room for. Um, I think there's some grosser stuff in the second one, um, that kind of made me walk out. I don't think I really understood the sex, you know, at all. Um, you know, interestingly enough, I think this was one of the scenes that Clyde Barker had to cut to get it down for an X rating. I think he wanted the sex to be more explicit. Um, and now there was fucking like a true pervert. Yeah, I mean he's he's got some issues if you if you read any of this stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I don't know. It's you know if you look at the the scene, it's not really showing you any nudity. You see the mm-hmm. bed moving, right? Okay. I maybe I thought they were wrestling. I was that right age. There's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of skin in the scene, if I recall, but not a lot of like nudity. Yeah. A lot of like people's backs and arms, the least well, you, exciting things to see in a sex scene. You see some butts at the end, but like <laughs> you know, after you know, after it wraps up, but you know, it's nothing. You never see an mm-hmm. actual sex happening. It's it's well hidden. So before we move on from this, I gotta ask you, what's your favorite Cenobite? Uh I think I, mm, let me look up. See, it's not Pinhead. Pinhead, I think he's right to be like the figurehead and the leader, but I don't think he's my favorite. Let me pull up a picture of all of them so I can, because there's, I want to say that I had a thought about this, but while I was watching, it might be the uh, the one with like the ring that kind of stretches down. Oh, the the, the female Cenobite. Yeah, the, the lady the, one. Yeah. 
And I still like the fat one. And I also like the guy who's just like a mouth. He's pretty cool. I mean, they're all awesome. Apparently, the um, there was a scene where, um, well, the scene in the movie where the, the female Cenobite says, perhaps we prefer you to Kirstie when she opens the box accidentally, was originally supposed to be said by uh, Butterball, who's the fat one. Hmm. But the prosthetics were basically too much. He can't even talk with it when he was in them. <laughs> Poor guy. Oh well. I do like the the feminine one though. The fact that the, she's the only one who's like coded as as female gives her an, an edge compared to the others. Although I'm not sure. I, I I assume that Monster Mouth is masculine, but I really have very little to go on to make that assumption. Oh, okay. Spoilers for Hellraiser Two, which Ian will never see. Um, yeah, that's it's correct. revealed that it, it's revealed at the end. Uh, well, no, I won't spoil it then. You you it, can go ahead. I no, no, oh, hold on. So you, you'll see because those three Cenobites come back, and you'll see more about them. you'll learn more about them. Okay. And it's it's it kind of undercuts the uh, the Shatterer mm. guy. I mean, well, that's not getting into the later ones where they they dispatch those Cenobites. Oh, and you I'm, have guys I'm not going to watch the later ones. Face and a guy with a, a camera for an eye that shoots lasers. That's definitely what Freaking I felt like was missing when I watched. When I watch this movie, it's like, I need more lasers. <laughs> that actually feels like what someone, what a kid would say watching it at the age you first saw it. Like, where's the lasers? <laughs> like, you're at like the height of a Star Wars obsession, and then just this gets thrown in your head. They kind of look like Darth Vader. Where are their lasers? Yeah, they are creepy. There's no doubt about that. That's the thing with, like, I don't, I'm probably, I'm a lot closer to you, Ian, on this movie than I am to to, to Mike, but I think that there's elements of this film that are like undeniably cool and the, like what it's trying to do. I really like, like I'm, I'm, as we'll talk about in a minute, I really like body horror and gross out stuff in movies. So it's aligned to my taste, but I don't know. I think Clive Barker is a, probably a better writer than he is a filmmaker. I think you're yeah, 100% correct. <laughs> awesome. All right, Dan, why don't you bring it home? Sure. Well, speaking of like weird movies for sex perverts with gross stuff in them, David Cronenberg and The Fly. Uh, Ooh, The Fly. I love this movie so much. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, the story of a man who um, enters his teleporter machine and there's a fly in there with him that he doesn't know about. And he comes out a monster, except instead of unlike the 1958 version where he just comes out with like a big fly head and then there's like a fly with a little human head, you know, little role reversal there in this movie they're uh they're bonded at a genetic level so he comes out at first seeming pretty normal but you gradually start to see the sort of flyness of his uh, body begin to manifest he slowly mutates into this hideous monster thing and it's so good it's so gross and disgusting but it's captivating and the scene i've chosen to highlight it's somewhat separate from the actual gross out stuff, but the gross out stuff really informs it, which is I have listed the pregnancy reveal. And you mentioned pregnancy in the context of this movie. I think most people's minds would go to the dream sequence of uh, childbirth, which is one of the most horrific things in the film and messed me up when I saw it as a kid, uh, which is weird because it's an experience I really can't relate to, but it still got to me. Um, but the scene I'm actually choosing is right before then when um, Veronica, who's the Gina Davis character who was uh, previously dating Jeff Goldblum's character before 
and after he became a fly monster, comes home crying to her ex-boyfriend and current boss, Staphis, and says, I'm pregnant. And he goes, oh, kind of dismissively, because he's like an 80s dickhead movie character, like, oh, women's problems. He doesn't say that second part, but that's very much the like sort of affect he has. And then there's a second where he sort of clues in and he's like, oh my God, like he realizes what this means. And I, I love this for uh, a lot of different reasons. One of which is I love that he acts as like an audience surrogate in this moment where when she first reveals she's pregnant, you're not thinking about it in the context, I think in that first second of, of like a monster movie because the concept is pretty foreign and specific to the story. You just think, oh, she's pregnant. Oh, wait a minute. She's pregnant with Seth's kid. Oh, wait a minute. They've had sex after he was DNA was crossed with the flies thing. Is that what this baby was formed during? Is mm. she, does she have like a monster growing inside of her? And I love the way that his slowness to realize what's going on gives you the audience time to have that same sort of panic um, in the moment. The other reason I love this is I find the character of Stathis fascinating. So I mentioned he's like the 80s dick archetype. He would be comparable to Walter Peck in Ghostbusters or uh, Ellis in Die Hard, the smug, sort of shit-eating grin, sleazy guy, um, kind of detestable. And he starts the movie that in like the most sort of basic way. Like he's just, he's can be really loathsome. But there are little hints throughout of like him being a more human character. Like there's a scene where um, after he's done something kind of cruel to uh, Veronica, the Gina Davis character, where he kind of, you know, apologizes and makes right. And she seems suspicious at first. And he basically says, I don't want you to disappear from my life completely. And you really buy this moment of like, look, I know like we're not a thing anymore and that's fine, but you're still my friend. And I find that like, Walter Peck doesn't get that kind of empathy in Ghostbusters, for example. Yeah. But this scene, I think, is a great example of that, where like you see his sort of his character that he is this this dick, but you also see genuine concern and care on his part that he wants to help someone he cares about. And I find that really just the, the consideration that John Getz gives the characters, the actor, and Cronenberg and the screenplay does. And later on in the film, he kind of becomes the de facto, not hero, he's still like the third most important film and character in the film by a wide margin. But he is, he's not the coward who flees, he's trying to help. Um, and I love the way that this simple moment does both. It gives you this sort of striking panic and it is a very human and honest scene. So that's my pick from the fly. Awesome pick. Yeah, that's also, a, that's a great uh, a great example of um, revealing again a horrific idea, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that she could be pregnant with a monster essentially is horrifying. Like it's a horrifying idea, and I like that Cronenberg is able to to build that realization in such a dramatic way. I guess right mm -hmm. where he he is thinking about the audience receiving the information and i <laughs> i guess you can relate it back to the <laughs> to the battery idea i would say this is done a little bit better but right it's the same the building that realization and where that one does it more like with mike was saying with the with the music's cues and everything like that this is doing it using uh, a secondary character which is a neat idea too mm -hmm. well and it goes back to your point too about like wringing the much as much out of your premise as you can it's like okay 
it's not just that he's a fly monster. If he is, uh, you know, still having like a sexual relationship, does she get pregnant? What does that look like? And we get, I know you mentioned your complaint earlier about like, psych, it's a dream sequence, which this does with that horrific childbirth scene, which I feel like it needs to be there. I know people get frustrated with the psycho, but I would not, I would not cut that scene for anything. It's one of the most, have you seen the fly Mike? I have. Um, Okay. I I hadn't seen it in, I don't know, maybe five or six years. I watched a basic cable cut version of it last night, which was omitting the childbirth scene as the only scene that was cut, which is very strange since it's interesting. All the rest of the body horror was kept in. I can um, see, something about that one though is really like it, it's it gets under your skin it's uncomfortable yeah there's there's definitely a personal horror to it that i mean you don't feel her horror as much in other scenes as you do there mm-hmm. um I, I love that this scene is that they don't cut away from her feelings towards bundle i mean i guess now at bundle fly immediately she goes back with the intention of telling him that she's pregnant and Mm. changes her mind because he's monologuing about the insect's inability to compromise or feel compassion and then saying get away um you know it's which is a heartbreaking scene yeah it is a crime that goldblum was not nominated for an oscar on the back of that scene alone (laughs) i'm dead serious he should have won Sorry, he's William very... Hurt and Kiss of the Spider Woman. I can't remember if that... No, no, that year was Paul Newman in uh, uh, The Color of Money, which should have given it to him in 1961, idiots. <laughs> yeah, he's very good. He's very good. And, you know, it, it, it will in the scene you're talking about in your moment, I don't think that ending, the ending um, works as well unless you have, you know, that compassion, that moment of, oh, shit, that comes mm. in from status and having him feel or and show that not support but you know at least concern right even though he's a, a piece of shit um, mm. you, you see him throughout the rest of the movie and that ending scene you know yes while there is some some um back and forth between um veronica and and brundle you need to have that third person there to kind of up the stakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I will say, I don't know if either of you have seen the fly Two. Oh, I have. Okay. So, you know, it sucks. Um, yes. It's very terrible. It's horrendous. Although Chris Wallace directed it. So the effects are, excuse me, still pretty good, but story is awful, but there's one scene where they go and visit Stathis and John gets returns. And it's like the one moment of humanity in the entire film like, I don't care about anything else in that movie or any of the characters, but he comes back and he's still like, he's still Stathis. He's still a prickly and not totally likable person, but he feels so genuine and human. Um, and part of that's just John Getz. I had no idea. I rewatched Blood Simple this week and that's him he, that Francis McDormand's having an affair with. And I had no idea that was the same guy. I was like, John, no. And it's Cy, Mark Zuckerberg's lawyer in the social network. Yeah. That's Stathis. Wow. He got puked on by Jeff Goldblum fly and he became a lawyer. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I love the scene and I love, uh, I, I love the, the way too. like, Ian, I know you're not 
a fan of like the gross out stuff, which is totally fair. It's, it's uh, a very particular taste, but how this scene doesn't draw on that and yet relies on your knowledge of it. Cause you've seen Brundle fly, like become so much more inhuman and gross. And you've also seen just like, like when the baboon gets like its insides flipped when they first try it with the teleporter, you've seen all this horrific stuff associated with the teleporter and what it does to living things. And now her just saying, I'm pregnant. And all that knowledge informs how you imagine that and read that moment. It's so good. It's so simple, but it really like, it's, it's a good example of like restraint too. Kind of like Silence Lambs moment. It's like, okay, we've, we've done enough like overt stuff. We can just put something out there now and the yeah. audience can, can just dwell with it. Yeah, that's a good point. Good pick. Was is there a scene where there's a creature that comes out that's two butts, <laughs> dog butt and a cat butt? No, that does not happen. Sadly, I, I saw just, that long before I saw the fly. I watched yeah, that too. Just I just realized that three of the movies we picked all have Treehouse of Horror, Simpsons parodies. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> so. Yeah, Nightmare, The Fly, and, and what was the other one? Play. Child The Cresty Doll. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. one of the best ones. <laughs> yeah. You got your doll set to evil. <laughs> yeah, that episode's amazing. <laughs> the yeah. Frogurt scene, godly. <laughs> just one of the <laughs> best scenes in the show. Yep. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, yeah, any more, any last words on The Fly, I guess? Dan, I purposely steer clear of movies that I thought that you would pick. Uh, so I steer clear of Cronenberg, although I was itching for the dead zone. So maybe I'll save that for a later episode if you ever invite me back. Yeah, um, I, I actually, it's funny you mentioned that. I've been meaning to rewatch that for quite a while now. It's at my, my intersection of my Stephen King taste and your David Cronenberg taste. And <laughs> obviously, you know, the other one would be the, the, the Shining. And I, I know that you're saving that for something else. Because I, I have seen, you know, obviously your your YouTube video was pretty amazing timing because we were talking about how amazing that bathroom scene is mm-hmm. you know separately outside of your youtube video um but you know it's it's something that you know um i was i was really sure that you're 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 gonna go for it uh, otherwise I'm, i might have chosen it for myself maybe i'll save it for later i mean yeah there's definitely a lot to to talk about there never don't ever feel like you have to choose around me i'll, I'll pick whatever Okay, well, awesome. I think we we covered the 80s and 90s pretty well. We didn't really dive into like the Scream. I know what you did last summer stuff, but I haven't seen many of those movies outside of Scream. Like I haven't seen any of the knockoffs. Yeah, Faculty. I know what you did last summer. None of them. It's been a long time. Oh man, I could have gone deep on horror sequels. This this had me sitting here monologuing, you guys not talking the entire time. <laughs> talking about Sleepaway Camp 2 and how it was a pre-metextual horror movie to New Nightmare. Mm. I loved it. I haven't seen Sleepaway Camp 2. I like the first one. Uh, one of them has Bruce Springsteen's sister as a main character. That might be that one. I'm not sure. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. Did they get any of Bruce's songs on the soundtrack? I, I doubt it. What's the point then? Yeah, I, yeah, I haven't seen in a while. <laughs> you just... think that's why they cast her? You put in a good word with your brother. <laughs> can you can you imagine it's like the sleepaway camp too as like one of the killer soundtracks of all time? <laughs> <laughs> all original music by Bruce yeah. Springsteen. Oh boy. It, it frustrates me that that's not a thing now. 
that but there's not like i guess flash gordon would be the closest one where it's like kind of a derpy movie but it's remembered really highly because of the amazing artists that did the soundtrack right you probably make a similar argument for highlander even though i don't think it's original music in highlander although maybe it is i don't remember yeah i don't remember either yeah if you're a highlander fan tweet at us and let us know because we're i'm not looking it up i can promise you that (laughs) (laughs) yeah so if you actually give us a tweet anyway tell us uh your favorite horror moments and horror movies from this time period um cinema underscore seconds is where we're at we're at cinema in seconds at gmail.com if you want to send us an email and yeah guys any last words on on horror uh, I'll I'll put in a, I'll put in a plug for for Dan's uh Dan's YouTube channel his uh his Jason uh, Voorhees video is highly recommended video for this time of season and um you know just I'm wearing my shirt to represent with oh uh, nice Jason wearing a TGIF shirt and a beer koozie hat nice. um but um you know, I would just highly recommend that someone you know, anyone listening to this check out that video it's one of the most entertaining videos on horror I've seen in a long time. Well, thank you kindly. I had fun making that one. So we are planning to do a couple more horror episodes coming up. So next week we're going, we're kind of using this as the middle pin. So next week we're going older and then the week after that we're going newer. And I hope you guys enjoy leading up to the big Halloween. And uh, yeah, check out eyebrow cinema so he, we've got some dune and star wars there and uh we just wrapped a bunch of james bond stuff up well we i didn't i have nothing to do with it dan did <laughs> hey you're a patron you help fund it <laughs> yeah and i'm sure he's got a horror movie uh video coming along the way i would imagine yep Pretty soon. this might be even seen as a, as a prequel this episode Ooh, to, to that video Go to my Twitter for an exclusive sneak peek. There we go. Okay, so that's it for us. Um, Mike, thanks for joining us. Yeah, oh, thanks Once for having again. me. Yeah, always good to have Pretty you. Pretty fun. And I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll catch you next time. Feeling alive in the noise and the light.